Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is Ryan Tansom, and this is the Intentional Growth Podcast, and this is episode 255. Today, we're going to be talking about how to create value and how to capitalize on multiple arbitrage by transforming analog businesses into software as a service companies. Today on the show, we have a guest named Corey Tollefson, and Corey is a general partner and co-founder of a private equity firm called ArcSpring. ArcSpring is backed by a lot of real heavy hitters, and they are a next-generation private equity firm. They truly want to change how the industry operates, and they combine capital, technology, and operational expertise. And don't worry, we're going to talk about in the show what this actually means and why it's different from some of the other private equity firms out there. And they integrate design thinking and unlock exponential growth by using technology to transform old analog businesses and industries. Corey has over 20 years of experience in the software and technology industry. He's been on the board of advisors of a bunch of well-known companies. And previously, Corey was the senior vice president and general manager at Infor and group vice president at Oracle. And Corey talks about all the people that are on his team at ArcSpring and how they're integrating the people from his past into the private equity firm and their business model of changing the way that analog companies actually operate. We're going to be talking about why Corey believes every company can be a software company and can have a digital transformation. We're also going to be talking about what that means for valuations and how Corey's buying analog businesses at analog prices. So think about a service-based business that has got a multiple of three on EBITDA and they transform it into a digital company where they can get a multiple of revenue. And he's got very specific examples and case studies about how this happens and how that multiple arbitrage is captured. I also love how he talks about the importance of operational expertise and experience in order to actually deliver the transformation that every company needs. And that this is not just some financial exercise in order to yield value creation by rolling up companies and flipping it to the next person. There's actually goods and services being deployed to real customers who pay real dollars for a new type of service that they did not get before. There's a ton of gold nuggets in this episode because Corey's got case studies that he talks about. They talk about how he went from the corporate world to raising the money to buying these companies, why they're buying certain companies and what they plan on doing to those companies in order to get the value creation and the transformation that we're talking about. Thanks for tuning in and I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Corey. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to Arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Corey, how are you doing, man? Good. How are you? Nice to see you, Good. Yeah, I was just, yeah, we were just saying that the last time we virtually saw each other was before the whole world got flipped on its head. And I've had a couple interviews recently where like the whole thing is kind of back to where we are. And yet it's been that while and here we are. <laughs> 
So I'm excited. And you guys have been uh, doing a lot of stuff since we talked last. Yeah, we were talking, Ryan. So I can't. So 18 months ago, we started our own private equity firm, which I'm happy to walk you through. And I kept thinking to myself, God, it couldn't be a worse time to start a private equity firm. But in all actuality, it was the best time to start a private equity firm because it really validated our thesis and our model around analog to digital. Well, and, and I'm super excited to unpack that. And uh, yeah, I also, I think the investment thesis is wonderful, but also it's kind of difficult to retire on US bonds these days. So I think uh, investors <laughs> are willing to give other people that have got a good investment thesis some uh, some capital to help them help themselves and their investors. So why don't you give us just a, a quick overview, Corey, your background. We'll just take this kind of in the, the timeline because I know there's some awesome things you got going on with Arc Spring and then what you guys are going to be planning on doing the whole investment thesis. There's a, there's a lot to unpack. And I think you and I are just going to let nature take its course as we go back and forth. But give us the, the background of you and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Born and raised Minneapolis kid. Uh, went to a local university here, St. Cloud State University. What went straight into technology. Uh, I went worked for a company late 90s, early 2000s called Anderson Consulting, which is now known as Accenture. And uh, basically, my, my DNA was technology, innovation, transformation, basically anything related to implementing these big, hairy type projects back in the day. And uh, over the years since Accenture, I went on to uh, join a company called Retech. It was one of the largest most innovative technology players based in Minneapolis here. Uh, company went public in 1999, huge success in the market. It was one of the first companies that had a, uh, a GUI-based uh, core merchandising execution supply chain management system for the likes of pretty much every Fortune 500 retailer at, at the time was using it. Hmm. And then over you know the preceding couple of years, we helped a lot of those retailers go direct to consumer and help them get an online presence. So brands like Best Buy, Nordstrom, Tesco in the UK, pretty much the who's who of retail, they still use that software. Hmm. And, and it's scary to think that there's a lot of our code still written in it, which is very scary. <laughs> yeah. in, in 2005, uh, Oracle came knocking after the dot-com crash a little bit. They're looking for ways to get into uh, micro verticals. And if you remember Oracle back in 2005, they'd just done the hostile takeover of PeopleSoft. And uh, they were growing their apps business. And at the time, Oracle was predominantly a database software company. There were, really weren't a lot of applications to drive businesses. Mm -hmm. And one of the thesis that or the thesis that Larry Ellison had was to, to really own an industry and to become dominant in an industry, you had to have micro vertical solutions. So Retech uh, was the dominant provider in retail. And I think at the time, our market share was like only 5%. So it was highly fragmented. It was a growth market. But Retech was the number one provider of retail solutions. And it was a thesis within Oracle. And basically, it's, it proved out that the more you can speak to running a company's business, then all this other stuff like database and middleware and hardware, cloud, it all comes with it. And so that was back in 2005. And it was a front page of the Wall Street Journal uh, bidding war between SAP and Oracle. Uh, and once Larry Ellison gets involved, he's not going to lose to anybody. So he, uh, he bought Retech in 2005. And in 2005, uh, Charles Phillips was the then president of Oracle. Uh, anointed Duncan Angove King. And so Duncan was the general manager and divisional CEO of what we called Oracle Retail, which was a brand 
it was, you know, in private equity speak, it was a roll up within Oracle. Retech mm. was the platform that we snapped on about a billion dollars worth of software, acquis- software acquisitions on top of it. And then over the years, we added some additional uh, components like a $6 billion acquisition of Micros, a billion dollar acquisition of Arts Technology Group called ATG, which ran, which at the time ran two thirds of all websites like Nike, Invest oh, Buy, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And then we bought the enterprise search engine optimization tool of choice, which even Google used back in the day. It was called Endeka out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, we did that. We grew the business. And then um, Charles Phillips and Duncan decided to leave and go to Infor, which was, uh, you know, one could argue that this should be a Harvard uh, business case. Basically, at the time, uh, the company was worth probably negative 500 million enterprise value because the bonds were public. Uh, it was 8x levered, you know, and, and the there was 10 consecutive quarters of double-digit software declines. And, uh, you know, in, in an industry like software and technology, if you're not growing 20%, you're dying. And this company was dying on the vine, but Golden Gate Capital infused additional, you know, lines of, lines of credit, additional capital come through. We bought Lawson Software in St. Paul. We took it, took it private. And uh, the team at Lawson did a great job. It became a destination platform for us to rewrite a lot of our software and, and make it micro-vertical focused. You know, last mile, last mile feature functions uh, that a lot of the big software companies can't provide because the total addressable market isn't big enough. Like in Oracle and SAP, they wouldn't find, you know, microbrewing or uh, things of that nature to be attractive because the TAM uh, on paper doesn't sound like it's, you know, something mm-hmm. that can be used across uh, multiple verticals. We did that. We relocated the company to Manhattan. We created a design agency that was huge. I mean, we were one of the first companies to put uh, aesthetics and beauty and usability of the software at the center of everything we did. You know, I think a lot of people would say, you know, software isn't the issue when people don't adopt it. It's not typically the software. It's typically the look and feel and the usability of it. Because the software is just a database, right? It's just like, are people going to use it? How much do they yeah. hate it? <laughs> and how much do they hate it? So we, 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 our tagline was enterprise software sucks. And we, we actually, <laughs> we awesome. actually, we actually had posters throughout our offices in Manhattan that said Enter- enterprise software sucks. Meaning how do you make it the best part of someone's day? You know, if they're taking like an Uber into work, that was a pretty good looking UI. Uh, if they're using Zenefits, or if they're using any of these, you know, Google, even Google is simplistic for search. Like, then why do they have to sit in front of a clunky computer with old green screens, right? So we wanted to make it the best part of a business consumer's day. So, so Charles Phillips was the CEO. Duncan Angove was the president. I was a divisional CEO under under Duncan and the guys. And um, you know, we just jammed at it. And you know, eight years later, we sold it to the Coke industry guys, who then took Infor private. And then um, we decided on the backs of that sale to take a break and figure out what we wanted to do when we grow up. And what we've always wanted to do was to create our own private equity firm and happy to walk you through it. But we're excited so far. We're 18 months in and and we think it's pretty unique that you have a bunch of technology operators uh, that have spent countless, I mean, 25 years for each of us, that all we've done is deliver analog to digital innovation for companies as large as Tesco and Boeing and as small as, you know, $50 million companies that have deployed our software as a, as a cloud service. Love the background. And it, and it's going to provide a lot of lens, a, a nice lens to be able to, to unpack where we're going to be going with ArcSpring and what you guys are doing. Cause I think your investment thesis is, is, in, is super interesting. 
and it's about the recipe for success. So I would, let me, I'm just going to throw you some just random anecdotal story, stories here, Corey. The, so there's so many PE firms right now that are just rolling people up. I've, I've told this story. I got multiple examples where, I mean, there are firms buying large companies to literally sell all their portfolio companies by the end of this year for the multiple arbitrage. I've watched others. There's a, a firm that worked with uh, someone else that I know, and they rolled up 18 companies in like 18 months, thousands of employees. And the difference, and I'm, I'm trying to make a dis- distinction here, the difference is those people were financial jockeys, know how to spread their spreadsheet. Corey, the, the, the growth rate was 45 degrees up. Everything's going to work out perfectly. And here's what I said. And it's so funny when I talk to business owners that are normal operators, Corey, I'm like, can you imagine rolling up 18 companies? And let's say all the systems integration works perfectly. You still got to manage the people. And then every operating business owner goes, because they know how difficult the integration is. Because it's not just on a spreadsheet. There's people and systems that actually have to work together to make profits, to generate cash, to generate a valuable business. (laughs) And so... I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm looking for any specific comment, but it's like just what you had said, the fact that you're operators and you integrated these companies in the past. What challenges do you see with integration and how does that getting brought into Arc Spring and what you guys are doing? Well, you had a lot. You had a lot there, Ryan. So let me <laughs> I know dissect. that you, I'm, I'm a victim of doing that. I apologize. <laughs> so, let, so, let, so let me dissect this a little bit. So so the easy answer is so and, and I'm happy to introduce the rest of the team, too, but. We, when we sat down and, and put this together, the easy answer could have been, hey, why don't you just go become a CEO of a software company? I mean, you guys have done this for 20 years. You've done software rollups. Why are you looking at doing something different? And the, 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 the truth of the, the matter is, it is simple and we are simpler. And we have done it before. We've done it at Infor. We've done it at Oracle. We've done it a variety of different places. The difference is, when you sit on this side of the table as a private equity guy, we now have lots of different chips where we can apply capital. But more importantly than applying capital is we can provide not just our technical and technology domain and know-how, but our network that comes with it, which, you know, just like on LinkedIn alone, I've got like 28,000 connections, mainly in the tech industry. And you amplify that across our group. We're, we seem to know, if not first degree separation, second degree of separation of a lot of the tech heavy hitters. And we want to apply that thoughtful domain into lower middle market, you know, owner operators that might not have access to that skill set. So for us, you know, back back to your comment, for us, it's applying capital like other private equity firms can apply capital. But for us, we, we also provide the digital transformational skills to take what an owner and operator spent 30 years building and taking it into the next level as a 2.0 of his or her business. And what I can tell you is, you know, when we get into case studies and talk a little bit about what we've done and making it real and actionable, every single one of the owner operators have wanted to roll a portion of their equity. On average, they roll between 25 and 30%. And they do it because they believe at the end of a five-year period that that 20 or 30% will be worth as much, if not more, than the initial takeout that they had on the initial tranche. I love it. And then the third part of your question was really around... How do you set this thing up for success? And how do you make it a firm not just financially engineering-based private equity firm? So that <laughs> that was probably the, the biggest eye-opener for us, uh, you know, being operators as technologists is a lot, there wasn't as much hands-on, like here's how we can help you, here's the skill set we have. It was more so around financial engineering. And there's a time and place for all of that. In fact, 
the way that our firm is set up, we have two sides to the firm. We've got uh, a private equity investment management based group that are amazing, talented. These guys are, you know, these people are, you know, they've done this for 15 years, 10 to 15 years, got great MBAs from distinguished schools, and they are the best at helping us manage risk. And the best way to describe it is they help us find a traditional 3x uh, multiple doing the basics, blocking and tackling, making sure we have the right management teams in place, making sure that the business is financially sound, there's differentiation around the, you know, the business, things like that. But then there's also the part that we bring to the table, which is, yes, we want to underwrite to an arc to, to a private equity based multiple, but we also want to apply technology that gives us the outsized returns. So our, our thesis is really around building a uh, underwritten model that aligns to private equity, but has the upside case of venture. That's how ArcSpring feels like we differentiate. I will now say there's a lot to unpack there, <laughs> and I'm super okay. excited too. So let's let's unpack a little bit more about what you mean by the digital transformation. So traditional 3X blocking and tackling, explain what a, an attractive opportunity would be like for that. And then also... Like, how do you translate that into digital transformation? And how do you get the VC type outsized returns mechanically? And like, so, and why does that actually happen? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about our thesis. So the ArcSpring thesis is really around this concept of, we call it A to D, which is analog to digital. So we define analog as lower middle market companies, typically digital laggards, lower, um, you know, white or blue collar services. But they're in a lower, uh, large growing market. There's attractive market trends. It's fragmented, but there's digital disruption that's yet to occur. So, like you know, media has been disrupted. There was a big tidal wave of disruption from digital. It's it happened in the retail. We've all seen what happened with the Amazon effect. It's happening now in the healthcare. But there's other markets that haven't been as disrupted through digital. We want to do that proactively before others disrupt these businesses. And that's one of the main reasons why owners and operators have been receptive to our message is because they know they've got good customers, they've got good cash flow. The typical um, you know, profile is on the low end, we might have 5 million in EBITDA. The most likely is most of our portfolio companies are more in that 20, $25 million in EBITDA range. And they're good, durable businesses, but they're labor intensive. There's lots of people. There's low technology adoption. They don't have a lot of digital talent. They act sometimes or most likely as a services intermediary. And, um, you know, in some cases, Ryan, they also have proprietary software. And that's the other thing that is attractive to us is, you know, after building business units and software companies and knowing development teams and knowing how to go to market and sell software... Our intention is there's really a couple of ways of doing this. We can take these companies, pivot them, and make them tech-enabled services providers. And I'm happy to walk you through a thes- our thesis around that. But we also have the capability of finding uh, assets that are hidden and pulling them out of the business and creating a software as a service business as a stand-up, standalone business. And some, you know, and I'm happy to give examples around that too. But that's typical around you know the analog portion to it. Digital mm-hmm. to us means, you know, we've got a, a platform called Springboard, which is a lot of our proprietary playbooks that include, you know, technologies that enable transformation. So this is AI, this is, a, you know, APIs, analytics, this is RPA, 
It's AR, VR, it's blockchain, it's robotics, it's all leveraging the cloud, it's 3D printing. It's all of our domain and skills that we've created you know, over the years that are the technology enablers. And um, through that technology adoption, we want to exit these businesses as a digital business. And when we say digital business, you know, we're buying these for lower multiples off of EBITDA. And if we do this right, we're going to be delivering transformation that allows us to sell at a multiple on revenue because there's going to be a lower cost of delivery. There's going to be margin expansion. There's going to be new digital revenue stream. And what you're going to be looking at are a lot of the characteristics that make a lot of these software companies very attractive. And that's the end state for all of our investments. I love it. And and even though you talked about a lot of the buzzwords, you've got the history to do it. I want to unpack because you got you got a case study that we can get into to say, okay, like what specifically are you doing to like a business that would actually enable that? But what I think is so interesting, Corey, is that I've had plenty of other people in the past where like, they take in a service-based business that has a certain valuation metrics and uh, metric. And I actually interviewed one gentleman that was a service company, and then he created a content business. So he got he he literally transformed it into having a different type of valuation metrics based on what he did. But what's so crazy hard for traditional businesses is the financial model and the cash flow and reinvestment to do that on your own without an event is very difficult because like how the payment terms work and all of a sudden taking, you know, big lumpy cash and then all of a sudden turning it into a lot of recurring revenue. And there's just so many difficult things to do what you're talking about, but the outside, the, the end result is so worth it because of why you're doing it. Cause like how it gets valued and what the potential is. So I don't know if we want to jump right into like one of your case studies on this, or if we want to go back and talk about, how you guys are actually finding these companies and kind of the first part of the journey, whatever. I don't really care which which way we go. Well, let, let, let me let me credentialize the rest of the team because I think it also helps differentiate why some of these owners and operators want to work with us. So yeah, and you just didn't pull up fast company and like rip off all the the names of all the, or the AI blockchain and VR. And, yeah, and no, all the stuff that's on like every column and fast company. Like there's actually people and expertise yeah, let, behind it. Yeah, let me talk about the people a little bit. So and first of all, there's something to be said for spending 20, 25 years in the tech industry and being an operator and working with end consumers and customers as opposed to you know spending 25 years behind a spreadsheet so there's a time right there's a time and yeah, place for everything legit, but yeah. but um you know let me credentialize our partners so duncan angove uh, is another co-founder and managing partner duncan was the gentleman i mentioned that took retech public back in 99 was a divisional ceo at oracle helped create that that business i've worked with duncan for 19 of 21 years of my career and uh, it's a man, it's funny how you can work in an environment where you not only like but you respect each other. Uh, it, it's to to me in this day and age, it, it, day and age, it's you know almost heavenly, right? So mm-hmm. he was the president at Infor as well that helped lead that turnaround, and I you know I was one of his uh, right hands. Uh, his twin brother Simon Angove is also a co-founder and managing partner. He worked for two uh, Vista-backed companies, uh, Vista equity-backed companies. Mm-hmm. One is the CEO of Central Square, another as the CEO of Superion. And prior to that, he was a, a divisional CEO of a company called Varent. It's, it's a publicly traded company that focuses on call center technologies. Oh, yeah. And uh, which why we also feel we're uniquely qualified to help disintermediate uh, between consumers and 
and uh, and other businesses based upon you know call center knowledge. So Simon and Duncan are you know um, co-founders along with me. There's another gentleman by the name of Jordan Lamb. Jordan Lamb's a co-founder. He uh, started his career off as a as a banker, an investment banker. Uh, went to Craig Hallam, helped start that company up back in the day. And then he went to Oracle, where he had one foot in technology, one foot in finance. He uh, ran oh, uh, Oracle's financing division, a, a significant part of Oracle's financing division. Um, before SaaS, it was a way in which you could we could get customers to deploy our solutions, you know, and aligning outcomes to a business case. And in turn, over time, that helped him develop uh, methodologies around, at Oracle, we were putting license at risk and we were tying business benefit to outflows and inflows. So he did a really good job of that. And then his last role at, at Oracle was setting up one of their first SaaS renewal businesses about six or seven years ago. He joined me at Infor and we helped turn that company um, around. And um, he's another co-founder. But some of these, some of these guys, I'll just there's a couple of others I'd like to highlight as well. So so John Poling is our chief technology officer. He was the CTO at Big Machines. Uh, Central Square, uh, at, at, you know, he had a very prominent role at Infor. He's the guy that we bring out on center stage and talk about all these transformations. A guy like that, you, you typically don't have access to him in, in the, the lower middle market. Uh, and he brings a wealth of knowledge to, to the team. We also have a gentleman by the name of Subash Gullapali. Subash uh, was a uh, uh, general manager for General Motors and helped them create one of their first onboarding uh, OnStar type technology around a satellite in mobile. And then he went on from leading that group, he went on to Booz Allen Hamilton as a consultant, and then went on to run uh, a big portion of Alex Partners uh, value creation team. And if you've heard of Alex Partners, it's another premier group that not a lot of companies can hire. I mean, I know we hired him at Infor to help us look at some areas of cost reduction and some analysis, but if you're a if you're a fifty you know million dollar a year company, it's it's kind of hard to hire firepower like that. And then we've got a, a wide variety of investment management professionals that are top notch. I mean, these guys came from Audux, uh, Rockbridge Growth Capital, uh, New Capital Partners, and they're exceptional at helping us underwrite deals to get to a great multiple. And they're very good at working with portfolio companies to make sure they transition their businesses properly. Because the last thing besides, you know, as a business owner and operator, you want to cash out and make money and get a reward for all the hard work you've done over the years, but you don't want to leave it in the hands of somebody that's going to crater your business. And these investment professionals are very good to make sure that we do uh, what needs to get done to transition properly. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a well, lot. Of saying, and I, but yeah, I, wanna, I would love to, to make a comment on it is that, why this is important for the listeners is how you just described your partners is regardless of someone's like whoever they're talking to as a potential acquirer, any PE firm, right? Like what are they going to do and who's behind it? Because I've watched like when you and I were talking about some of these stories of these PE firms rolling companies up and having no, no essential like risk in the outcome. Cause you're just going to hot potato it to someone else. Like the people need to know. And there's literally like, there was on that multiple billion dollar fund that I, one that I'm thinking of, there was like 15 people and they only knew spreadsheets. Right. So it's like the, the really understanding who comes with the money and the investment thesis behind it is so important. 
So you're you're bringing up a point that you know I, I look we're in early days right we're in we're in month 18 of creating this but I like to say we've been doing this for 25 years because we've been delivering upon this analog to digital for that long but you know one of the things that that is attractive to this space is we want to reinvent in our own shape way and form private equity like mm-hmm. typically the private equity model is you have a bunch of bankers and a financial model and you'll hire owner op- or you'll hire uh, operating partners on a part-time basis or on specific projects that may or may not have a vested interest in the success and outcome of those portfolio companies you know they're mm-hmm. on an hourly basis or a contract basis we are the operating partners right so we we have we're, we're making those investments where we're geared towards MOIC i mean these investments that we're making aren't for the faint of heart i mean uh, these people aren't cheap and there's a reason for it is because if somebody just wants, you know, if, if an owner operator is OK with just leaving it in the hands of a private equity firm with a traditional multiple and you know, hopefully things get better and transform and all that, that's one thing. But for us, we just feel like we're set up for pivoting these companies. I mean, it, the, the, we have an office in Atlanta, brand new office. We have 14 full time employees. Seven are on the value creation side. The other seven are on investment management. And we just feel like we're a different kind of private equity firm. We're we're bringing that software domain domain that you know, you know. I get this question every day, Ryan, which is why don't you guys just start your own software company or become a CEO? And my point is, it's so much more fun sitting at the table and influencing all these other companies. But there's also something different around what we're doing. I mean, we don't want to be a mm-hmm. Tomo Bravo. We don't want to be a Vista Equity Partners. We're not buying software companies. We're buying companies that should be software companies. And it's a small nuance, but it's important to understand that. It's like, you know, if if somebody would have had an opportunity to have, I mean, would you you back a group that wanted to create the next Airbnb by going, spending a bunch of money, spinning up a development team in Silicon Valley, and then hoping to unseat the taxi service? Our thesis is let's buy the taxi service and innovate them from the inside out. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for these owners and operators that are like, yep, I totally get it. I've got great cash flow. I got a great team. We just don't understand technology. And for us, digital transformation isn't installing Oracle or SAP or Microsoft. That's yeah, I was just going to ask that. <laughs> that's not how we define digital transformation. Like we could, that's part of it. We can do that and we know how to do it successfully. We're talking about reimagining the entire user experience, for example, and just leveraging iPhones. And so mm-hmm. it's, we create proprietary software with every single portfolio company that we work with. So, so I love it. So I'm, my mind's going multiple different directions. I want to come back at some point to why others believe your investment thesis and why they're willing to give you guys money. But I want to come back to that because we're on this train of like, I, I love what you said. I mean, buying real businesses that should be analog businesses that should be digital versus locking yourself in a closet for 10 years, hoping that then when you release it, after you've burned through a billion dollars that the world likes it. And 10 rounds of venture funding. (laughs) Yeah. And celebrating the rounds instead of celebrating creating value and economic benefits for everybody. So Mm -hmm. my, my question is why, why don't the current ownership structures of these companies do this? Oh, it's easy. It's because they don't they they're they're focused on their quarters and managing their business and making sure employees are happy and customers are happy. They, it's no fault of their own. If they had access to 
you know, guys like us that have done this for 25 years, they do it. But in this case, they want access to our skills and our network and what we bring to the table. You know, I, I mentioned Duncan earlier. Duncan, Duncan's on the board of Honeywell. And so Honeywell, if you think about it, uh, if you pull on CNBC, Honeywell is transitioning into a, into what they're calling an industrial software company. It's because they're, they're pivoting their business into more recurring revenues. They're looking at ways to drive up you know, software like multiples and, and, and margins. And they're, they're basically disrupting their business from the inside out. And it. our companies that we work with are going to be a microchasm of something similar to that. What's the book called? Exponential Organizations. Um, I think Peter Diamante wrote it or co-authored it. And they're talking about like, and it's very similar to what you're talking about with your Oracle setup, where he was explaining the big companies, they should actually create a sister or brother company that's independent, that can literally try to cannibalize the mothership. <laughs> it's just That was the only way to truly do it without all the politics and bureaucracy and all the other crap that's associated with it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the things that you asked for earlier in this conversation was, how do we source these these deals? How do we source these relationships? And it's 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 you know every private equity firm is going to say they've got their own secret sauce, and we have our quote pri- you know proprietary proprietary network. deal flow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but for us, but for us, the best way to look at it is you know we've we've you know we've in the last twelve months we've sourced. We're just going to close our third deal. Two of the three deals came from our network, just like friends of friends that we've built relationships with. In fact, the third one that I'll walk you through, this company is a, and I'm kind of getting into case studies already, but this third company is $170 million of enterprise value. There's about $30 million up rough orders of magnitude at risk. There's a rollover and there's about $21 million in EBITDA. And we're closing on this deal very soon, uh, very shortly. And um, the CEO of this company called us exclusively. He didn't even bring in another process. It was an exclusive ArcSpring deal. And the question you're probably asking, Ryan, and I'm sure viewers and listeners would want to know too, is why would someone sole source to ArcSpring? And the reason why is because we delivered on this analog to digital promise at his prior company. He was the C- oh, chief. In- he was a chief information officer at a company down in Texas called Rent-A-Center, and backed by the success of his project, he got promoted to chief operating officer at that firm. And he called us up and said, hey, look, we, we need access to capital, but we also need technology experience. And he knows that we're not just pie in the sky, sit behind a computer kind of guys. We get in the trenches and we help them set the strategy. We help them uh, measure measure the, the implementation. We help them just build as much innovation into their business as possible. So, okay. I love it. And I, and I want to come back to the, the, the case study and what you guys are doing mechanically with the technology and the thesis as you're looking at other kind of deals. But my question, Corey, is how are you guys overcoming the short-term thinking that is inherent in private equity? And if you have to deliver a rate of return, an internal rate of return, that's 21%, and you need distributions, and then you need to sell it within a time frame. I have yet to. Uh, do you know? I don't know if you know Sonny Vanderbeck. He's been. He was the Satori Capital. So he has no hold period on one point five billion dollar fund at all. And I'm like, so that's a way that he was overcoming. It's infused with conscious capitalism. And then I, because I, like I think about the five to seven year issue. And if you're going to go in there and burn EBITDA, infuse equity to do all the things that you guys are going to do in within sixty months. 
maybe we had, I, I'm curious, like how we're, no, how no, are no, this have... is a perfect setup because <laughs> while I, I believe what you're saying, and I think it holds true to 90% of, you know, private equity, the difference is we come from a technology world where if you're not growing your business 20% every quarter, you're dying. And then, oh, by the way, three years is an, it, you're a dinosaur. So from our vantage point, five years is beyond reasonable for us to transform and pivot these companies because we work in lightning speed. I mean, we're, we're the guys that, that you know, we're one of the original guys of agile, right? The whole concept of developing something from, from ideation. To, I mean, we're talking weeks uh, of development cycles as opposed to the old development cycle, which would take anywhere from 12 or 24 months to release a code of software, right? So Five years to us, while it might seem long, uh, short on a, on paper, if we're not delivering transformation within three to five years, then there was an issue. One of us, one of us did, came to the wrong deal. So super valid. There you go. That was a very legit answer. My other question would be then, and I'm just thinking through. So two parts of this story. The first part is when I implemented my ERP system at our company, it was like a 300, $200,000, $300,000 project. And I found out that most of our staff either A, doesn't like change, B, is not very smart, or C, like, like there's only a few amount of people that made that transformation. So the people part is a big issue. And then the second part of my comment, and then I'd love to hear your, your feedback is, there was a stat that I uh, got from the partner that we do strategic planning with. And he, he got this stat, and I'll have to ask him where. So I, I'm not big enough to have a fact check, uh, Jamie from Drill Rogan sitting there fact checking everything, but the, the, the 80% of, what the hell was the stat? Corey, it was like uh, 80% of the failures that happened in the construction industry happened because they tried to implement an ERP system. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, that <laughs> you don't need to fact check it. I'd say 80%. <laughs> is it just that, is that, that obvious? Just universal no, it's knowledge? That, it's, it's, it's that obvious, which is one of the reasons why a lot of software companies are struggling to pivot to the cloud because the way that software companies measured success in the past was based upon shipping a CD or providing a download URL, and they called it successful. And what happened is it created this multi-billion dollar business for the Accentures, the IBMs, the Deloitte Consultings of the world, because they were, quote, systems integrators, which was code word for getting the software to work with other software. And as you pivot to this, the, the cloud, the relationship doesn't end at the signature. The relationship begins at the signature. And so what I would say to, to you know, answer your question, really the first, you know, we're not looking to buy a company and then gut a company. We're not doing that. We're mm -hmm. looking at buying companies that already have good management in place, good business in place, but they just need something added to it to make it better. And the first thing we do with any company is we bring in a chief digital officer or chief technology officer. And the goal of that person is to come in and help the DNA of the company to help them stay aligned with our thinking which is don't, I mean, yes, we need to keep the lights on. Yes, we need to keep the profitability up. But hey, oh, by the way, CEO, uh, CFO, you know, you got access to this chief technology officer. We're going to drop in an expert from Oracle or Microsoft or Salesforce. And a lot of these lower middle market companies, they wouldn't know who to call to get somebody from one of those companies. And here we are dropping them in as a chief technology officer to transform these smaller, uh, middle, lower middle market companies. Yeah. How are you dealing with the people issue then? So like, okay, let's say the CEO's on board, CFO's on board, maybe you got, you know, some of the other people, now you got the CTO sitting in there. How are you doing with the rest of the organization? 
Well, keep in mind, remember, we're not just we're we're not doing ERP. So this isn't heart and lung surgery. I mean, we're trying <laughs> That's to a very good point. We're right. trying to we're trying to avoid doing end to end gutting of your platform. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. We're creating applications. Go back to my my acronyms because I love to throw them out as a technologist, right? We're looking at how do we how do we take some of your revenue and pivoting it onto more of a recurring revenue model? How do we open up that possibility of creating a fintech platform? How do we look at you know instrumenting aspects of your business through IoT? Like what are some of the areas in which we can create applications that engage your customer better? I mean, all, all these things are about engaging your customer. They're not about they're generating cash, not counting cash. Like we don't want to come in and rip and replace financial systems or HR systems. We want to outsource any of that stuff that, that causes you headaches so you can focus on your business. I like, I like it a lot. Um, so let's go to the case study because like the, these companies that you're talking about, so ideal, like give us like an overview, even before you get into the specific case study, like what is a good opportunity? So like, let's walk through like maybe a couple different good opportunities, industries, where you could see that hidden asset that might not be utilized. And then we can get into the case study. Yeah. And so, well, I like to say generalized services. Services, you know, our services economy makes up roughly two thirds GDP. And so for us, you know, is the industry largely disrupted already? Is the market uh, large and growing? Are there positive macro tailwinds? Is the industry fragmented? Does the company have a low level of technology adoption? Is it manual process today? Do they have brick and mortar or call center type businesses? Is the customer acquisition model mostly analog? meaning like television and print versus digital and targeted ads on social media? Is there an opportunity to build proprietary software in this company? Is the company an intermediary? Do they, are they a broker? Are they an advisor? Is the business labor intensive? Those are kind of like the attributes that we're looking for on top of whether, you know, is it profitable, good management team, All things like that. table stakes, yeah. But potential sectors of interest might be like, you know, insurance brokers, insurance carriers, insurance services, third-party administrations, claims adjusting, things like that. You know, business process outsourcing, like mm-hmm. finance and accounting, support services related to fleet mm-hmm. management. I mean, yeah. there's just lots of stuff out there. There's there's specialized third-party logistics, like last-mile logistics and transportation companies. You know, localized freight, like boats, livestock, bulk liquids, like anything that is a micro vertical that people don't have that vert- micro vertical experience. That's what we're looking at Super doing what I said before, which is finding a way to create proprietary software and differentiating. And that's yeah. the funny, by the way, that's the funny thing. The further you go down the micro vertical approach. So let's just say a specialized local freight around gravel, sand, topsoil, etc. There is not a platform on the planet that supports that business. So that company probably had to write their own software so for us to come in, we could look at that and find ways to monetize that software. And potentially one scenario is rolling it out in other markets that this company doesn't serve. Let's say a, a company, a gravel company in Minneapolis, they might not be international. So maybe we package up that software and run businesses and truck distribution in LA or San Francisco or Washington or mm-hmm. anywhere else because they don't compete. Yet they got this hidden asset sitting on their books, which is they've created this proprietary software technology. And so that's an example where we can spin that out and get a software multiple for it. 
I love it, man. And I think it's, there's wonderful examples there too, because I just think about all the experience that I've had inside of these different companies, Corey, like very, like very rarely can one software run that in, like you just said, the micro vertical, like, you know, we had in the copier manage IT space, it was e-automate. But then once we got into manage IT, it was connectwise. And now then you're just dealing with this pile of shit. Like you're constantly developing and trying to, just to get information. And there's one one thing I want to add to that too, is that you mentioned cost, enhancing the customer experience, which I think at some point our freaking economy has to realize like that's by the way, the consumers wake up, they have to spend money and then everybody else makes money. And like there was a Wall Street Journal article I read last year, Corey, that they were talking about software that these companies can buy to figure out how long to put people on hold to before they cancel so they're spending money to optimize on pissing off their customers the most. And I'm like, wouldn't someone just think, hey, if we had someone that's spreading the word of mouth, like that's maybe better. <laughs> well, I got I got a I got a I got a Freuders fun fill fact on that. So, you know, when I went to business school 20 years ago, they used to say, hey, don't worry about your 5% of your customer base, because if they talk crap about you, no one's going to hear it anyways. Well, that 5% now can be amplified on social media. You have to care about that 5% because that 5% could be hundreds of thousands of pissed off customers that are retweeting things on Twitter. And so that's a, a, a huge learning for business, corporate America and businesses that you know used to just say the customer didn't matter. At least 5% of them didn't, but they all matter. Well, and they could, they could cannibalize the entire company. That 5% could eat up the entire reputation of the entire firm. I mean, that's you're right. totally right. So the going into the case today, then I, I don't know where you want to start. And well, let me let me talk about. So again, we've you know we didn't talk uh, about how you know our our capital structure or any of that. I guess all I would say is that for you know we're we're, we're funded and we're happy about that. First opportunities we raised capital from high net worth individuals. We in the software industry we had. A lot of friends in this space that that wanted to support and invest uh, in our deals, but we also brought a lot of capital ourselves. So on the first deal that we did, I think we contributed maybe twenty five percent of the of the equity needed. The second deal, we contributed about thirty percent, and that's a little unheard of in private equity. Most most do maybe two percent. I think is mm-hmm. kind of the average. And so so we're we're putting our money where our mouth is. And frankly, we, we believe in our thesis so much, we want to get the the outsized returns ourselves. And so <laughs> there you go. Money where your mouth is. Uh, yeah, money where your mouth is. So so I'll I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about our first deal and then then I'll maybe talk about our deal that's LOI and we're about to close it out because I think it best illustrates what we're trying to accomplish. So the first deal was more of a more of a traditional roll-up in the sense. So we we did some thematic research. We found, and you're going to laugh at this because it, you know, our we're not as much sector focused as we're more so focused on finding companies across multiple micro industries, micro vertical industries that can be disrupted using our technology skills. And so this example I'm about to give you is going to be complete stark contrast to the third one and second one. But I, I want to talk to you about it because you'll, well, the mechanics you'll... are the same, right? Because it's a micro vert. Yeah, like what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so we, we did some thematic uh, and you know research, and we found that there's 1.8 million kids in the United States that are playing flag football every year, and we found it's for a variety of reasons. You know, I'm a parent. You know, I'd prefer that my kids learn the fundamentals. When I was a little kid, I'd throw the big shoulder pads on, and we just bump into each other. 
And I honestly don't feel like I learned the fundamentals of football until high school, and which is too late. Like, so what we're what we're doing is, or what we looked at is, is there is there a, an overarching governing body that has like a a dominant market share of flag football? And what we found is there wasn't. And so we went out and we bought uh, a handful of platforms within North America uh, that that manage flag football leagues. And awesome. we and 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 over the last nine months, we've essentially acquired seventy-two leagues with over a hundred thousand participants. So I'll say that again: seventy-two leagues in nine months with a hundred thousand participants. And the thesis really is: it's a high-growth market. We want to consolidate that market. There's multiple vectors to to revenue. I mean, if you look at how they made their money as independent leagues, it was all on registration. If parents or players needed to buy flags or footballs or jerseys, they'd say, go to Dick's Sporting Goods. Like, we don't handle that. Oh, my that. God. So, so the first thing we did is we created a, a website where all, all parents go to procure everything from, you know, at a workflow. It's <laughs> That's direct- genius. I love it. Yeah. So it's it, And it's all direct to consumers. So they put in their order. It all gets shipped directly to their house. So now, essentially, we're an on <laughs> e-commerce retailer as well. And the other part of the thesis is we want to lower the cost of ownership and the lower cost to serve these parents and their kids. We created a technology-enabled services platform out of Dallas, Texas. We're located uh, across the street from One Cowboy Way, and we actually have some office uh, across the street from Jerry Jones. And so, so we our DNA is from the Dallas Cowboys facility, and you know everything from. You know, click to call, click to chat on your phone. It goes straight to the the centralized uh, services group. And for us, we can improve player level or uh, unit level, unit economics per player at a granular level. And so this is everything from you're going to, you know, when you're buying for 100,000 kids jerseys, that's a lot better than buying as individual league owners with 100 kids. Um, we've created a rostering and scheduling uh, platform using AI to help better set, set the tone for uh, more evenly distributed teams. So uh, and, and, and having this many players, and we're across 40 different cities across the country, every major city is uh, it, you know, part of this platform. We also had to create an, uh, an application to basically become a logistics platform for referees. So at any point in time during a year, we've got 60,000 referees that we've got to get to the right field at the right time in the right location. The This company, we like it. It's called Gridiron Football. It's under a parent company umbrella called One Sports Nation. And what we like about this and why we call it One Sports Nation is because this is just one part of the business. Like we're testing all the software that we've written. We're testing it on our own platform, our, our own brand. But our intention here is there's two businesses and two ways in which we can make money and monetize this at exit. The first is just the simple basics like unit economic improvement, growing the you know, revenue, growing margin. That's that's going to take a life of its own. But mm-hmm. that software that we created, there's no reason why we can't upload that into a cloud. And now suddenly anybody that wants to start a league, whether it's lacrosse or basketball or normal football or traditional football yeah. with pads, they all can use our software too. And we just get a fee for it because today there's, there's software that, you know, there's a registration app that's out there. There's a customer care app, but not all of it tie it together, including a website that allows you to buy and sell your products. So would you spin that out into a different entity then to then potentially sell? 
that's an interesting point you bring up, Ryan, because short answer is yes, we can spin it off as its own software company. But then there's a part of us that looks at it and says, hey, look, that technology, it differentiates that sale. We might want to keep it. Like would Airbnb or Uber sell their technology to make taxis run better? Maybe not, right? That's the core of their business. Well, the question is, do, do, do are we making the assumption that these companies need to make money or not? <laughs> right, right. Oh, I won't digress. <laughs> there right. you go. <laughs> no, that, that is so interesting. There's two components there that I, and I'm just thinking about it from a consumer perspective, Corey, that is integrated into your guys' thesis that these companies, because they have not optimized for the customer experience. I mean, I think about it and like, I'm a millennial like God forbid, right? Um, <laughs> like the first year of it, but I am. So you have these, like I now have kids that are turning five this year and I grew up with technology, kind of, right? Like Facebook came out when I was in college. I bring that up because I get so freaking frustrated with how inefficient in the user experience. I'm trying to manage my life, my family's life and these experiences, bringing my kids to and from these things now. And like, and it's just like so archaic. That it's just like, I would literally, if I trusted a brand, I would give them all my money. Just make my life easier. But instead, everybody's optimizing for their net income that year. So they're not investing in their their experience. And it's just so obvious to me. I, I just don't know like how much, how do you guys measure the, 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 the satisfaction of your customers like that? Because I think about like, you know, you probably have to have some sort of gauge on that before then you launch the e-commerce and they're going to buy the flags and the jerseys and all that other stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there to, to talk about, Ryan, I guess the best way to describe it is the parent engagement and the player engagement will more than make up for um, the, any Delta that we have in the pricing that we increase and things like that. So Anyway, it, it's all about the customer experience. And I guess the reason why I say that is when you're when you're selling software as software operators, everything they, they vote with their wallets. And mm-hmm. so you have to create a better experience for them. Otherwise, they're not going to continue to pay. And that's the experience that we're bringing to the table. We know that. And so, you know, a lot of people don't live in the trenches and feel that every day, but we do. And we we did. So how is uh, that the flag football experience, uh, company compared to the the one the other case study that you were going to be talking about? Yeah, let's talk about that. So the third one is again, this was sourced through our net. Well, both of them were sourced through our network. They weren't. They didn't go to market. A lot of reasons for that we already covered. But this one is in the debt settlement space, and uh, the debt settlement space. There's a lot of unsavory actors in this place, like payday loan guys, and you know people. You know just. There's some unsavory characters, but we feel like these guys are on the right side of history. And I can't d- divulge what we're going to do with the branding and the names and all that, but we're we're going to create the Robin Hood of debt settlement. And um, mm. a lot of it is manual today, heavy call center based, and we're going to do everything we can to disinter- disinter- disintermediate the channels by leveraging uh, technologies like the phone. Hmm. And so uh, this business doesn't take on ownership of the debt. They basically are a 100% agent to help lower your credit card bills. And credit card companies and banks love them because they'd rather take 100% of some, or 50% of something versus 100% of nothing. Mm-hmm. And at this point where most people you know, feel like they're at wit's end, I mean, this is a really stressful environment for a lot of people pre-COVID. You know, now that COVID's happened, and sure, it's there's just... been some headwinds associated with the government printing money and giving out 
you know, stipends and things like that, but that's okay. I guess, you know, I, I, I want to see people thriving again. And what we like about this business is a hundred percent of the revenue is paid based or the hundred percent of the revenue is based upon customer success and negotiating credit card debt. Hmm. And so for example, you know, if someone has a $10,000 credit card that they're, they're, they're behind on, you know, we might be able to negotiate it down to $5,000 of which they might pay us, you know, $2,000. Everybody wins. And we don't get in this company won't get paid a penny unless they successfully negotiated and lower it for you. So there's nothing like you pay in advance and your wages are garnished or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. not, not that type of deal. And for us, all their revenue that they do today, you know, it's roughly 70 million a year, 22 million in EBITDA. All that revenue that they do is one single service they provide. There's multiple ways in which we can we can impact that business. And um, we're looking at bringing in some heavy hitters that ran marketing for uh, a lot of telcos, you know, about five or six years ago that are going to come in and help us create a wonderful brand and, and help, you know, help turn this, this business. And when I say turn this business, they're thriving today. They, I mean, 70 million in revenue, $21 million. I, I got those numbers, man. You didn't have to, you don't have to even repeat them to me. I yeah. know that's uh, that's pretty nice. But they're, they're doing well today, but I mean, we want to create like, a beautiful brand that people feel good and comfortable using. And frankly, we, we want to help these people that, you know, most of them aren't just bad spenders. Most of them had like a family emergency. Someone went to the hospital. Next thing you know, you got a $10,000 credit card bill. Like we want to help these people and this is the best way to do it. And we're going to, you know, add some additional complimentary services related to job placement or credit 101, finance 101, how they can't get back into that situation again. As we're rounding out here to home, a um, couple of final questions. And like when you're you you care a lot about from what I'm seeing right now, like you you care a lot about the industries and the customers of the companies that you're willing to buy, right? Like and and, I, and it's very obvious. And my question for you, Corey, is like, how do you align your guys's care for these companies and more so the customers like you've been talking about the customers not even the companies the customers which is awesome and very unique how do you align that service long term when you sell it when we sell it Mm -hmm. well that is a really challenging question because i that that's taken like three steps into my crystal ball i i think (laughs) the best i think the best way to set up success from our acquisition to replatforming, infusing our digital experience, and then selling it. I mean, there's lots of different, you know, there's a lot of different outcomes based upon which micro vertical in it. It could be even a roll up to, or it could be part of an acquisition by another PE firm. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, what we want to do is we want to systemically replace as much manual labor today and digitize everything in the process we can. And so that's a long-winded answer of saying there's a lot of best practices you can enable through a tech platform. And for us, we want to put everything onto the tech platform. So, like for example, if you know this third company we talked about, if we can create a Robinhood-like application, the platform becomes itself. Like inherently, the way the customers engage with it, mm-hmm. that's the that's the legacy. That's that's what you're buying. You're buying a platform that's repeatable, scalable, and all you need to do is just keep feeding features and functions on the platform. Yeah, it's already got a, it's already got its own operating mode where you, yeah. yeah this has been a blast Corey. i i don't know if there's anything that we missed on i mean we've covered, covered some good ground here i guess if i just had to summarize for you ryan you know if i had the the ear if i bent the ear of potentially an investment banker or even an owner operator i'd say 
you know, the ArcSpring thesis, we feel that analog to digital is highly differentiated. You know, you have a team of multiple people with 25 years successfully executing the thesis together, by the way. A lot, you know, that that's unique in, in and of itself. Typically, it's people that come from different groups and they kind of know each other and try to build it together. We've, we've been doing this together. You know, we've got repeatable playbooks. We've got the technology skills, the relationships. We feel like we've got a unique, high-quality uh, approach to sourcing these deals. And we have a nice balance between operators and investment professionals because those investment professionals, like I said earlier, they're going to make sure that we take the companies that we acquire into the you know the right realm and they're the mm-hmm. ones that help us underwrite to a 3x multiple if we can't get to a 3x multiple we're not gonna we're not it's not a qualified deal for us and you know the other thing i guess i would say is you know in 18 months we've self-financed this whole thing the firm's already in place we're executing upon the strategy we're delivering digital transformation and the risks are fairly low of working with guys that have been here for 18 months you know, I kicked off this call by saying we've been doing it for 25 years, which is true. This has been a lot of fun. Corey, the last two questions is one is the word intentional. I ask people what it means because the name of the show, and I love to hear everybody's different versions of it. What does the word mean to you? What does the what mean to me? The, the word intentional mean to you. Intentional. What does intentional mean to me? Uh, intentional to me means you purposely do an act uh, that's preconceived and well thought out of. I love it. And for a different podcast and a different day, Corey, I would love to hear you guys' like process on coming up with these investment theses. Cause I think that's one of the biggest struggles that a lot of the listeners right now have is how do I get confidence in my thesis? But like, we'll, we'll put a pin in that because I think there's a lot to it. The last part would be what is the best place to get in touch with you in ArcSpring? Yeah. So it's really simple. It's Corey at ArcSpring.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I'm pretty engaged on there. In fact, that's a little fun-filled fact too. I was one of the early adopters of using LinkedIn before it was called LinkedIn. It was called socialnet.net back in like... <laughs> definitely don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. So, I, so while you were in college, I was using socialnet.net and it became LinkedIn. <laughs> that's awesome. Socialnet.net and find me on my, MySpace. No. <laughs> exactly. Corey, this has been a, a lot of fun, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. You got it. Thanks, Ryan. See ya. Thanks for tuning into that episode with Corey. I hope you enjoyed it. I love how actionable that interview was. And if there's anything to take away from it, it is about how Corey views value. And if you're thinking about your business, what is it worth today? And what can you be doing to reinvest that cash flow, change your operations to accomplish the value creation that you want in order to have the exit options that you desire in the timeline that you want? If you have a couple decisions each year, which is how much money do I take out? How much money do I put back in? If you determine that you're going to put a certain amount of money back into the business to reinvest, you better damn well know how that's going to create value. Otherwise, don't do it. And if you have the ability to create value by shifting the business model and getting a multiple of revenue because it's a digital company, holy cow, that's one thing. And not everybody can do that with the expertise or the resources that you have available, but That level of thinking is absolutely available to everybody because if you're thinking about your business like a financial asset, then you should be thinking about how do you create more sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow to yield the highest enterprise value with the most amount of options. If you want to think a little bit more like this and you want to view your company like an asset, learn more about business valuations, the exits, and how to grow value, go check out our intentional growth course at arcona.io. We've got the curriculum.
curriculum out there. We've got five videos that show you a little bit of a flavor of exactly what we're going to be getting in the material, the content, and the, the value that we're bringing. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I will see you next week.